Today's reading is from Luke 1, verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. The word of the Lord. I think I will not have anything on there. Uh, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, it is... Um, it is about your word that we are, are going to be thinking in these next um, minutes. And Lord, it is our desire to hear you as you speak to us in and through your word. And so that's what we pray right now. We pray as people who need to hear you, uh, that we would hear you. That you would help me to speak clearly, that you would help us to hear what is true, and that you might strengthen us through this. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So what are we to make of this book? What are we to make of the Bible? That's the question that our focus is on this morning. And considering that we are in a time right now where it seems like wisdom is in short supply, where confusion is high, it seems like a highly relevant question, don't you think? What are we to make of it? There is almost no disagreement that the Bible has been an incredibly important book. By account a number of years ago, more than 5 billion copies of the Bible have been distributed. That's just amazing. It's by far the most distributed book in the world. Um, Time Magazine wrote about how the Bible has had more influence on our history and on our culture than any other book, and it continues to have that influence today, and I think it's right. In a survey, 80% of Americans said they believe that the Bible is a sacred book. So it is clearly seen as a very significant book. And yet at the same time, it's not clear what that significance means for people. So less than half of the people in America, many of whom say it's a sacred book, have even read the Bible. And in the same survey, only about 30% say that they believe that this is God's word meant to be taken literally. I think, I think probably the most common way of viewing the Bible is to say, well, yes, it is an important book. It's a book that has a lot of wisdom in it, but it's also an ancient book. I mean, if you've ever read through it, you realize it feels sometimes weird, disconnected. And so it's common to say, well, you know, it was an important book in that time, but it was of that time. And there are some things that probably were believed then that we understand better right now. There are some things that are written then that are relevant to us right now. It's a book that has some wisdom, but it's not one that we should necessarily take literally. So what are we to make of the Bible? Perhaps a good starting point as we're trying to think this through together is to think of how the Bible presents itself. 
which is actually kind of a, str- a strange way of putting it because it's not like the Bible itself can do anything. And it's not even like the Bible is just written by one human being. If you know much about the Bible, you know actually that dozens of different people are writing the Bible or have written the Bible over the course of centuries upon centuries. And you have all sorts of different kinds of material that are collected. You have some First-hand accounts. So Nehemiah talks about what he did when he was helping the wall be built. And, and Paul speaks firsthand about his encounter with Jesus. Or, or you also have some historical accounts, like in Kings, where it talks about the sources it's gathered, as, as we see also in the New Testament, that are historians' works. We have some people who bear witness as prophets to having directly encountered God and being told by God what to say, And we have others where people are just kind of like normal believers who are in song, like in the Psalms, expressing just the the difficulty or the joy of following God. You have a lot of different writers, dozens of writers. And so in some ways what you can say is the Bible is a collection of witnesses. Many different people testifying to their experience or their corporate experience of God. And what we see consistently throughout is the expectation amongst the Bible writers that what they are writing is to be taken literally as the Word of God. Now by literally, just to be clear, I'm not saying like literalistically, woodenly, of course there's genre. When, when the Bible says the Lord has bared his holy arm, it's not saying God has an arm. Of course when we're reading we should account for genre and metaphor and all of that. What I mean is that the writers consistently are expecting us to understand that what they are saying is truthful is factual, is to be taken as telling us about the way things are. So the historians that I mentioned, you have the writers of Kings saying, you can check more about this in such and such a source, double check. Or, or we just read, and we'll look at this a little bit more later, Luke says, I decided to get this careful account. It's saying this is historical fact, pay attention. Or the Apostle Paul spends two chapters at the beginning of Galatians essentially saying, you need to understand that what I'm saying is not something I've made up, it's not something I've heard from other people, that it came from God. Or if you think about how Jesus treats the Bible as he treats the Old Testament, again and again he refers to it as describing what actually happened. And at certain points, like at one point he says that David, when quoting a psalm, speaks by way of the Holy Spirit, these things. Jesus saw God being the one who guided and directed the Old Testament. Again and again, what we see in the writers, the testimonies, everything that we see in the Bible is this universal expectation that we are to understand these words as truthful and as coming from God. So here's what I think this means for us as we're trying to understand what to do with this book. We, we are in some ways forced into only really a few different possibilities in terms of how we interpret this. If we know that the writers again and again are saying, what I'm telling you is true and what I'm telling you has come from God, we can, we, from God, we can to, to kind of maybe borrow from C.S. Lewis, we can kind of think one of three things. We can say that, that they're saying this, but they're actually knowingly deceiving us. They're lying. They are, they're choosing to bend the truth when they are describing these things. Or, or we might say they're sincere, but they're not very careful, and a lot of this is just kind of stuff that's built up over time and isn't really accurate. Or we can say it is what it says it is. 
In other words, the three options I think that are open to us, now that if we understand how the writers present this as God's word, is either to believe that they are presenting propaganda, or they're presenting a legend, or they're presenting the word of God. So let's consider those three different possibilities. It, it could be that as we are considering what these writers are saying, that we could say, perhaps cynically but understandably, look, they're, they're just, honestly, they're bending the truth. They're making stuff up. They're leaving stuff out. They are trying to tell things to us in such a way to get us to join with them in their religious beliefs. Uh, to put it another way, what we have here is an ancient form of propaganda where the stories are told in such a way to manipulate us, and there's not much attention to the truth. There's just an attention to how persuasive it can be. Now, it's interesting because we actually have a decent amount of studies done about how propaganda works. You can look World War II, World War I, Germany, even America. You can see certain consistent ways that when people are willing to bend the truth to persuade people, it will look certain ways. One of the things that we see consistently in propaganda is a sanitizing of the account. Where, where there's only the good of what you're seeing and, and none of the negatives. So, so if you can think of like some of these pictures maybe you've seen of posters of Germany, of the great German soldier or whatever, and it's just beautiful and pristine and there's nothing about the ugliness of war. That's the way propaganda works. It's only telling you the things that might entice you. And also with propaganda, one of the things that's consistent is what you hear described as the bandwagon effect. That is, propaganda will try to persuade you that everyone else is doing it, or at least everyone who's important is doing it, and you should too. You know, real men join the army, so should you. So, so propaganda, everything in propaganda is calibrated to convince us to join with whatever they want us to join. That's how propaganda works. So I want us to consider the evidence. Do we see those things in Scripture? And the answer is no. You know, one of the things that's striking, and this is actually one of the reasons that sometimes people struggle with the Bible, is there are a lot of embarrassing details. So in the Old Testament, who are the heroes? Abraham. Abraham again and again fails when he is tempted in certain places. Or David, David, the great king that everyone refers to is the one who murdered one of his soldiers and committed adultery. Israel is the great people of God, the great people of God who keep on failing. The priests fail, the prophets fail, the kings fail, everyone's failing. And why are we recording all of this if we're trying to convince people to join us? Or, or think of the New Testament. The apostles are the leaders. They're the ones who are preaching the gospel. They're the ones who are instrumental in the shaping of the gospels. And how are the apostles depicted? They're a bunch of nincompoops, right? I mean, Peter, one of the main leaders, is someone who's impetuous, who says always the wrong thing, it seems. And then in the most important moment of Jesus' life, he fails Jesus. Now, if, if you are Peter... Why would you have that included in the story? Or why, when you are describing the resurrection, would you start by saying two women were the first witnesses when women were generally discredited as not being reliable witnesses? Why would you do it that way? If you don't have to worry about facts, if you are just telling the story however you want to tell it to convince people, why would you include all of this stuff? You wouldn't. Or think about 
Think about Jesus himself. I mean, Jesus is the great hero, right? The great figure that we are supposed to look up to. And in that day, you know, like the heroes were people who were strong, who had no fear, who had no grief. You didn't have the strong, sensitive type in that time. You just had stoics. And what do we see Jesus? We see Jesus weeping at someone's death. We see Jesus overcome by fear and anxiety at the garden. We see Jesus on the cross crying out to God, why have you forsaken me? This is confusing. And think about the bandwagon effect for propaganda, the idea of everyone's joining. Is that the way the Bible presents it? No, it says everyone's leaving in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, only the lowly, the people who aren't important, are the ones who believe. Do you see the point? If this were written in such a way to try to convince us, why does it include all of these things that make it so much messier? The only explanation I can come up with is you have people who are dedicated to telling the truth. Or let's even think about the, the, the witnesses themselves, the people who are composing this account. When, when you have propagandists, they're doing it for a motive, right? There's always a self-interest. That's why you, you destroy the truth to be able to get people on board. So what are the, what's the payoff for these people who are, who are giving witness to these things? Think of Jeremiah the prophet. What does he get out of it? He gets to go be thrown in a dungeon. Or think of the apostles who are writing letters and who are bearing witness. Paul killed. Peter killed. James killed. John put in a, an island as a prison. Not one of them, when it gets to the point where they have a decision, say, you know what, I was just making this up. No, they hold on to it even though it kills them. Why? I mean, if we just step back and weigh the evidence, and we ask the question, does this look like tales that are told to deceive us, to manipulate us, but, but yet they include all of these things that make it so much more messy and embarrassing for them and, and it's at great cost to them. Or is this a picture of a number of witnesses who are so committed to telling us the truth that they're willing to give their lives for it? I think if we weigh the evidence, we say this, 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 is not, that, that, this is not just a manipulative attempt to pass one over on us. This is people who sincerely are committed to telling the truth. But maybe the, the, ne the next response will be, okay, yes, I can see what you're saying, and I think these people mean it sincerely. It's not propaganda. But, but I think it's also quite possible that you have people in that age who just aren't as concerned with the facts as we are. I mean, we have this modern-day historical, uh, that's not the way it used to be, and, and so legends just kind of accumulate. We know how it is. If you've ever played, you know, telephone, one person says things to another, and it keeps on getting changed and changed, and isn't that what we might see here in, in, in the Bible? That it's, it's not propaganda, but really it's kind of legend where the facts kind of have fallen apart. Well, this, answering that question would take us more time than we have, so I want to just kind of zero in on just one section of the Bible, on, on the Gospels. Um, because really, if, if we ultimately believe the Gospels are the Word of God, then everything else follows. So, so let's raise the question, are, in the Gospels, do we see evidence that these are 
are legends that kind of border on myth or fiction, or do we see something that is history? And from the outset, when we look at this, we, what many people are struck by is the way that these accounts are described. Luke, we'll see, is very careful about this account and, and all the details that are involved. And one of the things that, that literary scholars say is when you look at this, this is so very different from legends of the time. Like even if you were to read some of Homer, like the Iliad or the Odyssey, you'll notice that there's not an enormous amount of attention to detail. You've got things like smitings and great oaths and heroic moments, but you don't have little things like the name of small towns or, or details like a head being put on a pillow. In fact, C.S. Lewis points out that there's a significant difference between legends and what we have in the gospel. See, in, in our day, we have realistic fiction, right? In our day, we have stories that are told where we include location, where we include the names of people, where we include everything to try to make it realistic. But if you look at the literature of that day, that just did not exist. If you're telling a story, if you're telling legends, you only have the big stuff, none of the small details. So C.S. Lewis says, commenting on this, he says, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all of my life. I know what they're like. I know that none of them are like the Gospels. Of the Gospel text, there are really only two possibilities that I can think of. Either this is reportage, that is, people who are trying to actually record what's going on, or else some unknown ancient writer, without any predecessors or successors, suddenly came up with a whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. Do you see, he's saying, when you look at the way that this is written in the Gospels and how carefully detailed it is, it is so different that, that there's no explanation except that this is actually just people trying to record what happened. And we see that in the passage that we just looked at. If, you know, like the very first few verses of Luke, Luke is trying to say, let me tell you what I'm about to do in this gospel, this account that ultimately tells the story of Jesus. Let me just point out a few things that he says, three things that I want to highlight that help us to see why this is so different from legends. So he writes, you know, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Let me stop there. Do you notice how he's talking about things in a very present contemporary way? He says, things have been accomplished among us. Eyewitnesses have delivered this information to us. This is a very recent thing that he's describing. If we were to continue into the book of Acts, which is like the sequel that Luke writes, he very clearly describes about how he, he starts saying we at a certain point, he joins Paul in his missionary journeys, probably around 50, 51 AD. So that means Luke knows Paul personally. He's had ongoing conversations with Paul in the 50s. When they go to Jerusalem, he meets James, the brother of Jesus, having conversations with him. He meets John Mark, who's a good friend of Peter, and he has conversations with him. So in the 50s, he is talking to eyewitnesses in Jerusalem and to Paul who know and have experienced things firsthand. So 50-something A.D., when Jesus died and rose from the dead around 30, just, just think about how brief that is. Let me do a quick experiment. 
Um, I'll actually ask for audience participation. How many people remember the O.J. Simpson trial? Okay, a ton of people. All right. And we probably remember a lot of the details, right? We remember the white van, the white SUV, I mean, and you've got, um, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. We even remember lines from it. We remember the verdict. That was just about the same amount of time between right now and when it happens 23 years ago, 24 years ago, as when Luke is talking to these different sources. Now, if we were to get together and talk about it, my guess is we could probably do a pretty good job of describing everything that took place. Because 20-something years ago is not that long ago. And if one of us came up with some kind of crazy story that was way out in blue, the rest of us would go, no, I know that's not true. And we weren't even there. Imagine if we were there in the course, if we knew O.J. personally. And it's probably worth adding that in that time where people mostly weren't literate, we've, uh, like anthropology studies have shown that people have the ability to remember what they hear so much better when they can't read. So, so in some ways, the memories of detail were even greater at that time. So if Luke is going to write something or he's going to speak of something, there are many people who are going to be able to contradict what he says if he's getting it wrong, right? And we see Paul saying the same thing. Paul, when he's writing a letter to the Corinthians, and I remember when he's writing this, he doesn't, he doesn't think this is going to necessarily be recorded in the Bible. This is just a letter to a church he cares about. And he says, And Jesus appeared to many witnesses, 500 of us, and last of all to me, some of whom are alive today. And his implication is, you can check with them. See, this is, this is really recent stuff, where it's not yet to the point that legends can arise this is the time where people can correct and, and corral and you can listen to first-hand accounts and you can put together what you have here. Now notice also what he, he says about his intent. He says, it seemed good to me, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. His intent is not to just kind of do something haphazard. But, but to do something detailed and careful. And if we were to look through the Gospel of Luke, and, and actually the other Gospels as well, we would see exactly that. And it's probably something that we don't even, it doesn't even occur to us how striking the details are. So let me just kind of ask you to imagine for a moment that you have decided that you are going to write an account of a fictional story that takes place in France. Let's assume that you've never been to France. If you have, this doesn't work as well. And, and you don't have access to the internet, you don't have access to the encyclopedias, so you're wanting to describe a story of what happens in France. How are you going to do in terms of, of where it's going to take place? If they're moving through France, you'll probably get Paris. And then after that, maybe you might know one or two other cities, but like the local towns, you're going to be coming up blank. Names of rivers. How, how about names of people? Like, what are the common names these days in France. It's not even like you knew just French names because every generation names become more or less common, right? Like, like in my generation, there are a bajillion Jennifers, right? I think we have like five Jennifers in our church, two congregations, but I don't know any kids age 10 or under who are, who are named Jennifer, right? It's a generational thing. So you're not going to be able to really get it right in terms of the details because you probably don't know which names are popular. You don't know the names of the locations. And if you were to look at some of the pseudo-gospels. Like, I don't know if you've heard about these. There's always, like, conspiracy theories like Dan Brown, Da Vinci Code, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Mary. These are books that anyone who knows anything about it knows that these have been written more than a century after the time of Jesus. 
And the thing that's interesting is if you look at these kind of pseudo-false gospels that are trying to tell about Jesus, they have none of the details, right? They have maybe three town names. They have maybe five names of people. They don't know anything of like the stuff of what's going on because why would they? They're 150 years later. But what do we see when we're coming through the gospels? There's over two dozen names of towns, not just Jerusalem. Jerusalem's the gimme everyone knows, but towns that no one knows anything about, Capernaum. In, in, in these Gospels, they know that that big lake that's in Galilee, the locals call a sea because they really don't know much about seas. The Gospels know that you go up to Jerusalem and you always go down to Jericho because Jericho is really low. The Gospels know the names that are common. There have been archaeology where they've looked to see what names were common in that time, and the names that are most frequently repeated in the Gospels are the same names that are most frequently repeated elsewhere. Now, how do you get that level of detail where you know all of these names and all of these details and all of this local information? It only can be one of two things. Either you were there at the time or you talked to someone who was there at the time. This is, this is not the stuff of, of legends. One other detail, I don't know if you noticed, where he talked about how there were other people who have um, been trying to put together uh, accounts as well. Um, it says, just as those from the beginning were I knew witnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me, having followed all things closely for some time, to, to write an orderly account for you that you might be certain. And, he's, and there's other, you know, he's implying here there's other eyewitnesses, there are other accounts that are going on, and we know that, right? We have four different gospels. And in these Gospels, there's some overlap. So we can assume, some people might assume that like Luke probably already had Mark's testimony. I mean, Luke knew Mark. But there's also some stuff that each of the Gospels have that are distinctly their own. There's some stuff that you find in Luke that you don't find in the other three. There's some stuff that you find in Matthew that you don't find in the other three. In other words, they might have had some common sources, but each of them had their own sources. By many estimates, you have five or six different sources that are describing what took place. And what's interesting about these six different, let's call them witnesses, is while they provide different information, it's overlapping information that fits together. So, so Luke's source knows from Mary's perspective what it was like when Jesus was born. Matthew's source doesn't have that part. Matthew's source knows what it was like from Joseph's perspective. He has a different source. But yet when you can put them together, they, they tell the story together perfectly. Or think about the resurrection accounts. If you include when Paul described things in 1 Corinthians, we have either four or five resurrection accounts, and each of them includes different things. And each of them kind of comes from different angles, that some of them are talking more about the angels, some of them are talking about more the, the women or the interactions the women have with Jesus, some of them are talking more about with Peter and all that. But here's the interesting part. All of them fit together to make a coherent narrative. Now, if you're thinking about how to weigh witnesses, isn't that exactly what you'd want? Like, if all... All accounts say exactly the same thing that would betray kind of this universally agreed on, here's the story we're going to tell people. And of course, if it contradicted, that would show that there were some issues. But when you have different accounts, each coming from different angles, yet fundamentally agreeing, if you are in a court of law and you're hearing that with witness after witness, what's the conclusion that you draw? They're telling the truth. You see, the whole idea of legends just doesn't fit. What you have here is recent 
carefully detailed details that fit the time, a genre that's different from legend telling. You have different witnesses that all agree. This, this can't be just legend. This is careful history. And some of the best history we have from ancient times, if not the best. So, so there's no evidence that there's a, a carelessness. There's a carefulness with the details. And yet at the same time, we've also said there is no evidence at all that there's any desire on their part to deceive. They're willing to tell the truth even when it costs them. So if it's not legend and it's not propaganda, then what do we have here? Before I finish that idea, let me just point out one other thing that I find striking about the Bible, and that is how remarkably coherent the Scriptures are. Have you ever been in a group project where you're trying to like do a presentation or write something together? It can be messy. Now imagine that that group project suddenly extends so it's like 60-something people that are writing together. That's awesome. Now, now imagine actually that it's three different languages that they all speak. And oh, let me also add that they have a thousand years apart from each other and in remarkably different personalities and stages of life. How in the world are you going to get something coherent? And yet, the more that I've studied scriptures, the more that I've found this deep and remarkable coherence. And I realize that that claim is something that I can't back up in the time that we have here, but let me just give one little incident, one example of this. So, so about 2,000 years before Jesus, you have Abraham, like one of the great heroes of the Old Testament, right? And, and we have on record in Genesis, God promising Abraham that through his descendants, the whole world will be blessed. Just think about how unlikely that is. One person, through his descendants, the whole world will be blessed. Think of how unlikely that would even have felt for Israel as they're this little podunk nation in the middle of nowhere as they have that promise and they don't know what to do with it. Somehow the whole world will be blessed through them. Fast forward a thousand years ago. Now you've got David, a descendant of Abraham, and God makes this promise to David and saying, you are going to have a descendant who will be a great king and his kingdom will never end and he will be like a son to me. Think of how utterly unlikely that promise feels. A king whose kingdom will never end and who will be like a son to God? Fast forward 300 years and now you have Isaiah who continues to talk about the promise of a David. We saw this kind of in Advent about this, this king that was coming and then when you continue to later on Isaiah, it gets even more complicated because it speaks about this king who is going to, to suffer and he's going to somehow bear the sins for his people to save them. 2,000 years before Jesus, 1,000 years before Jesus, 700 years before Jesus, and then what do we have? Jesus, the Son of God, as the Gospels describe, the, the Son of God coming to earth and going to the cross, and he says, as the Gospels tell us, that before he goes to the cross, he says, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. He is exactly what Isaiah said. And when he dies and rises again, what does he say? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I am the king. I am the son of God, and my reign is forever. And think of the impact that this descendant of Abraham have had. The whole world has been changed through him. Everything that is said in the Bible all holds together, and it finds its center in Jesus. Now, how does that happen? I know of only really two explanations, either, and maybe it's not an either, I think it's a both. What 
people are describing is just the truth, because the truth has a way of holding together. Or you could also say that somehow there is someone organizing every single voice into something coherent. In other words, it is the Word of God. It is God who is guiding and directing and making this all one unified story. Now, I, I realize that if you have kind of dived into reading the Bible before, it feels weird, it feels foreign, it feels sometimes confrontational or offensive, but just ask yourself, if you just weigh the evidence, what do we make of it? Do we say that even though it has all of this messy stuff that doesn't seem to be, you know, like sanitized, it's propaganda, even though people died for it, do we say that even though we see all of the evidence of a remarkable carefulness and cohesion that is legend? Or do we come to the only other conclusion that I can come to, and that it is the Word of God? I don't expect just this on its own. If you have come in this morning not knowing what to think of the Bible, I don't think that this is necessarily going to convince you of what I'm saying. What I do hope that it convinces you of is that it is at least a possibility. It is a possibility that this thing that seems so ancient actually is God, the creator of the universe, making himself known to us. Because if it's even a possibility, don't you owe it to yourself to test and see that's what I would encourage you to do, to test and see. We, we started the book of Luke for you in these first four verses, and my encouragement to you would be to keep reading. And to keep reading Luke, not just as like this holy, sacred thing, but just to read it as history, as someone who is trying to tell you a story and is being very careful about it, to read and notice the details, notice what it says about Jesus, notice how it all fits together. And let me encourage you to not do it alone, because the Bible was written to kind of be a team sport, to find someone who maybe knows their way around Luke, to, to let them be kind of like a Sherpa for you as you're kind of climbing this mountain. And if you're needing someone to read a book with you, the book of Luke with you, you've got my email addresses in the back of the bulletin. I would love to do that with you. Because here's the thing, I, I am utterly convinced of the stuff that I've already said this morning, but I'll tell you that's not the fundamental reason that I'm convinced that Scripture is the Word of God. I'm convinced of it because over decades of spending time reading it, I have experienced in a way that I cannot explain in any other way that it's God. I've experienced truths kind of penetrating my thick skull in a way that kind of will floor me at times. Things that suddenly give me a clarity, a joy, or a, a grief over ways that I've made mistakes. Ways where I have experienced God somehow in this ancient book speaking. And my desire is for you to be able to experience that as well. Because if this is even possible, that the God of the universe has made himself known and has made his ways known to us, can you think of anything more important to pursue and to seek to understand than that word? I'd like to invite us to just, as we do every week, spend some time kind of reflecting before God, maybe praying, maybe if we are feeling like, hey, I have not been listening to God like I should, even confessing that, and then I'll lead us in prayer in just a couple minutes' time. Let's pray silently.
Father, I think of how um, in a number of different places in Scripture, who you, your people are when they're faithful are described as those who hear your word. And Father, I confess on behalf of myself and many here that, that it is often the case that we are not good at hearing that we have so many different voices, so many things going on that we fail to listen to you even though you speak to us in your word. So Father, we, we ask for forgiveness because we know that is not what we should be. And we ask for your spirit to help us because we know you've given your spirit to enable us to hear. And all of this, Lord, we cling to Jesus knowing we have forgiveness through him and our desire is as we hear to see him more clearly. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Hear from God's word what we read. It says, this saying is trustworthy and it's deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, Paul says. Brothers and sisters, in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God.